Welcome to Frankly Speaking. This is a new podcast on responsible business by Frank Bold, the European public interest law firm. I'm Richard Howitt, and after several years of debating these issues inside the European Parliament, I'm hosting our discussions on the latest political, legal and business developments in the fields of corporate sustainability, business and human rights. We'll speak frankly and personally about what moves policymakers, business and activists to make responsible business the norm. Today, Frankly Speaking welcomes two leading experts from the world of business and human rights. Dr. Elena Yuvarova from the National Law University in Ukraine and Anita Ramsastri, Professor of Law at the University of Washington in the United States. Companies often have to negotiate difficult issues in operating in conflict situations around the world and have often come under scrutiny for their conduct from Sudan to Colombia to the Middle East. Earlier this year, this was brought into sharp relief as the world was shocked by the invasion of Ukraine, the humanitarian tragedy which unfolded within the country and the wider implications for all of us. This is a human rights issue too including for the most fundamental human right of all, the right to life. Lena Yuvarova is a specialist in human rights within Ukraine. She has developed the national baseline assessment of business and human rights for the country's Ministry of Justice. She also co-founded the Association on Business and Human Rights for the Central and Eastern European region. Professor Anita Ramasastri is one of the leading academics and a pioneer in the field of business and human rights. Anita has just stepped down after serving for six years on the UN Working Group on Business and Human Rights, the body that provides authoritative advice and guidelines within the UN system on the issue. Welcome to you both, Lena and Anita. Lena, first, um, when uh, the invasion first took place, you were so and are so well regarded in the business and human rights community around the world. I understand you got 20 offers of sanctuary saying, come to our country, we'll look after you. But you chose to stay in Ukraine and to continue your work there. Uh, clearly, we wish you, all of your friends, colleagues, families, and all of your fellow citizens, uh, the greatest safety. And we offer great solidarity to you. But I think our audience will want me to ask, you know, how how can you make any sense at all of business and human rights in, in a country that is at war and under attack? Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. And hello to all. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's true uh, that uh, actually all of us hoped uh, that uh, we can uh, remain uh, and uh, this war uh, could be uh, stopped uh, quite fast uh, and uh, we can just continue what uh, what we did before um, and uh, to be honest uh, I I spent one week uh, in Kharkiv um, the first week of the war and uh, shellings uh, with my family and um, from one side uh, it's a terrible experience but from other side I'm honestly, I'm even glad uh, that uh, I spent this week in my native uh, town, my native city, because uh, I 
un understand now much uh, better the situation and uh, I think that uh, it's really important to make a decision uh, with uh, understanding uh, the local situation and uh, with understanding what needs, uh, uh, what motives of people who remain uh, in emergency situation because um, it's uh, it's a uh, uh, huge discussion today in Ukrainian society why some people uh, uh, remain in their native uh, cities in their native settlements uh, uh, even in this situation of high emergency I I can understand why and uh, um, I I, I uh, saw uh, the different conducts of uh, businesses, of international uh, business and local business uh, and how they made the decisions. And the next uh, three months um, I, I spend in a quite uh, safe part of Ukraine and it's... Um, uh, it it g gave me uh, opportunity to see the difference of um, of understanding of the war situation in different parts of my country um, and uh, how business conduct impacts on this understanding as well. So yeah, I think it's important to be inside of situation. And we're going to discuss some of the, the the guidance that's out there how the guiding principles apply in conflict and you know some of that sometimes feels a bit abstract and theoretical for people when we discuss it in conferences and in other situations but how real and meaningful is it to you and, you know in terms of the actual companies that are working today in ukraine what they're saying to you what you're seeing what you're hearing from one side, it's too complicated uh, to make uh, general guidelines uh, more uh, concrete, and uh, um, that's why when we are reading today um, the guidelines which already exist uh, related uh, to business and uh, human rights and situation of conflict in may in many cases uh, we have a feeling that it's not about uh, our situation it's uh, to abstract especially for companies which uh, don't uh, have uh, human rights capacities uh, because we should understand that uh, Ukrainian companies didn't build uh, human rights capacities in peaceful time very we have very few examples uh, of companies which uh, um, really made efforts to build human rights uh, capacities before the war but i should say that uh, it uh, make uh, them it makes them more preparedness for 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 the challenges uh, which uh, the war created uh, because they have 
general understanding that uh, human rights risks should go first before the financial risks. And this company uh, thought uh, about shelters for employees, about relocation of employees, uh, about uh, financial uh, support uh, for employees. Um, and they uh, were thinking, first of all, about uh, human rights uh, risks and how they can minimize uh, the impact of conflict uh, on uh, on people, uh, on the local community, on uh, their employees and so on. Uh, but uh, we have a lot of examples of companies uh, which uh, think that business is about making money and actually their decisions uh, in times of war still uh, are built uh, on uh, the financial side and um, they uh, they don't think about safety of employees they, they didn't evacuate them uh, they even didn't uh, uh, inform them about uh, possibility to leave uh, uh, the city because uh, the war uh, started uh, and many people uh, remained uh, in their cities just because they were afraid that they can uh, lose their job. Anybody outside uh, I believe cannot make uh, these guidelines more concrete for companies because uh, company should understand local context and this context will be different uh, in each situation. It's absolutely fascinating that you say that for at least some companies that they've got heightened awareness about human rights that they wouldn't have had and didn't have the capacity to deal with before. Um, I, I want to come back to that issue of preparedness but could I come on to to Anita now, because that word heightened has been used by the UN Working Group and the UN system about conflict situations. And 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 um, the, the latest report, the, the Working Group that you've just left produced, talked about having a heightened human rights due diligence approach in a situation of, of conflict. And I think people who are not familiar with that report or specialists in the area might say, um, with everything else going on, with all of the threats, with all of the uncertainty, how on earth is that possible? And also, what does having a heightened awareness mean? It's a, it's a technical challenge that you write about. It's not just a set of words. How, how would you describe that? Yeah, thanks, Richard, and thanks, Lena, for setting the stage. As we think about this, I just want to step back and say, I'll first talk about the UN Working Group's guidance and, and all of the guidance that's out there that is re really aimed at what we think of as larger transnational companies that are working in multiple markets. And for them, I would say there's sort of two lessons we have. The first, and I think Lena has underscored that, which is that it's important for businesses, if they can, and for governments supporting businesses, to train them in human rights due diligence, just the basic human rights due diligence. So at a minimum, 
companies that have processes in place. And again, they are contextual. That's the whole idea of the guiding principles is you identify the harms that you're connected to and you have plans in place for dealing with them. So if you have human rights processes built into your business frameworks, when a conflict arises, you're much better equipped because you know to look for the risks, right? And you know when you have people who identify them, you have remedy channels, you think about your employees. So we just need to remember that human rights due diligence isn't a super prescriptive thing. It's all about businesses developing frameworks that have human rights risks along with all the other risks that they think about um, daily. And work in the local context that Lena was talking yeah, about. Yeah, and work in that local context. And, and, and the guiding principles encourage that, right? You speak to rights holders. You understand who your employees are. You understand that there are different kinds of markets and different harms that could you be, be connected to. And what we've seen in places like Myanmar is that companies, and we're hearing from Lena in Ukraine, if companies haven't already developed that muscle memory, it's going to be a problem when a conflict arises. Because then, as you're saying, to go from ground zero to heightened is going to be very, very challenging. So that's the first lesson I think we've seen. In Myanmar, we found that there were companies that had not done anything, didn't know who owned the property they were on, hadn't really examined whether their, their contracts were with people that had ties to the military. So that's step one due diligence as a framework. Step two is this heightened. And what we say there is just to say for businesses, and again, transnational businesses in particular, when you are either entering a market that is fragile, whether you find yourself in a market that suddenly conflict um, escalates, or if you decide to leave, you need to understand not just basic bread and butter issues of, you know, uh, is the factory floor safe, right, for your workers. Now your factory floor might be a conflict site or bullets may be coming in the window. So you have to understand who are the parties to that conflict, what has changed in terms of the dynamics, and be able to, as best possible, respond to new risks that come from conflict. And Richard, you say, well, you know, people might ask, well, is heightened too much? But we have to remember the connection that business may have to grave human rights abuses also occurs in conflict, right? So the, the nature of the harm changes. So the nature of the due diligence needs to change as well. Just one last piece, though, which is that the group that we I think we have left behind are companies that stay, right? We have local businesses in Ukraine, for example, or we think about really anywhere in the world, they can't just leave, right? And there may be reasons for why they wouldn't leave. So small businesses, local businesses, and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't support them. So it's very important for governments to have strong guidance and, and tools that they can use to help those local companies who may, for example, let's say that a town is occupied by Russia. Suddenly, that company may find that their equipment is commandeered for military purposes. We, and so the question is, how do we help those, those companies and those business owners with tremendously difficult choices? And there are scholars and, and researchers who look at those challenges. We've seen this in the Middle East, for example. So I'll say, yes, those companies need help because it's going to be harder for them to just do Human Rights 101 uh, when under pressure. Lena, I wanted to pick up on that point in particular. In the, in the directly conflict-affected areas in, in the eastern Ukraine, uh, as Anita just said, there'll be occupying forces there. Um, companies may be subject to orders at gunpoint. You know, how on earth do comp can companies respond in that situation? How are they responding in, in real life in Ukraine? 
No, actually, we have uh, very different conduct uh, uh, from uh, international companies and local companies. Um, uh, first of all, I, I want to say about international companies. I, I have impression that um, for many international companies, the easiest uh, decision is just to stop to operate, uh, just to avoid any uh, risks that their employees uh, uh, could be uh, um, could be affected by by the military actions on their workplaces uh, or their clients could be affected by military actions uh, during the interaction with these companies and that's why uh, many companies most of international companies stopped to operate in eastern Ukraine uh, just uh, on, on the first day of the war at the same time uh, the local companies uh, continued to operate and uh, not just uh, example from again from my personal life uh, on uh, the fourth day of the war we spent four hours uh, in the line to buy uh, bread uh, just because all uh, food stores uh, were closed uh, from the very beginning of the war and all big supermarkets closed and what company is more responsible for us uh, in that situation? Metro Cash and Carry, which stopped to operate on the first day of the war, or this small local company, which uh, continues to operate uh, uh, pr products, uh, bread, uh, and uh, uh, sells this bread to people who are almost uh, starve. No, so this is one example and also uh, about preparedness i just want to add that companies should be ready to find themselves uh, uh, as providers of essential goods and services, even if in peaceful time they won't uh, be uh, providers, they won't uh, providers of essential goods and services, just because the context changed. Uh, for example, uh, Uber uh, in Ukraine. Uh, Uber uh, is just providers of uh, taxi services. Is uh, uh, a gig uh, pl platform. And of course, in normal life, uh, Uber is not uh, a provider of essential uh, services. But when people need to have access uh, to have access to transport services, to find any opportunity uh, to get a train station, bus station, uh, evacuation corridors, and so on and so forth, of course, these services. Uh, uh, could be considered as essential. And uh, Uber uh, as well stopped to operate uh, on the first day of the war, again, because uh, of uh, the reasoning of employees, not employees, drivers' uh, uh, safety. But local company, the similar with similar services continue to operate and it was crucial uh, at that moment for residents of Kharkiv city, of many other cities under shellings to have access to these uh, services. And that's why companies should ask themselves uh, not just uh, 
about employee safety, it's very crucial. And of course, companies are responsible for employees' safety. But they, to my mind, they should ask themselves if they did all possible efforts to balance different interests which are important at this moment for local communities for and employee safety. Pretty strong call there to for Western companies some of whom may have got it wrong, some of whom I know are, are still very active in Ukraine and are helping keep the mobile phone systems going and distributing the humanitarian aid and even helping with logistics. But um, uh, uh, I think there, there's a, a cautionary call there in what you say, Lena. Anita, do you mind if I ask you to apply that same question about what the Western companies do in relation to Russia, you know, should they have stayed, should they stay in Russia? How do you use the business and human rights framework to help you make those very, very difficult decisions? Well, Richard, I think this is where we actually are coming up against what some are calling the limits of the guiding principles in the sense that when you read the guiding principles, the whole idea is not about companies cutting and running. It's actually the opposite, right? You, it's about using leverage, that companies are meant to use their leverage to bring about change. And if we think about historically places like even South Africa, or we think about Northern Ireland with the Sullivan and the McBride principles, there was this notion that if you could within your own sphere of operation, respect human rights, use leverage, speak up and speak out, um, and the risk, and you were able to mitigate anything you're connected with, then maybe you could stay. Uh, and that still is sort of the, the ruggy vision today. The challenge, of course, is that Russia brings us into a very different place where there's what, what leverage? Um, I think, you know, we have to just begin by saying what leverage? Um, and also the fact that companies leaving may kind of exist or the decision to leave may exist outside of that, of the guiding principles, either because of sanctions or because again, this is a war that, that companies and governments cannot, cannot condone. So what we say to people is, first of all, within the guiding principles, you still have obligations if you decide to leave. So for companies that have, for other reasons, uh, left the market, uh, they need to still think about responsible exit and, and, and how to, to leave. I think where, and again, it'll be interesting to hear Lena's perspective here, where there is this gray area where I think a lot of us are sort of, it's angels dancing on the head of a pin, is the issue of who has the right to stay. And you've heard from certain kinds of companies, the pharmaceutical sector, some of the food and beverage companies, uh, technology companies, if they can seek sanctions waivers, that they're there because they're providing, as Elena mentioned, these essential services. Um, the guiding principles, again, would say, well, yes, if you are in a certain way and there's a reason for, you know, again, not supporting the state, you've got it. You can't do that if, if again, if, if you're fo focused on the war, but you're really there to support people with essential uh, access to medicine or food, uh, then then you you could stay. And so companies have have used that as a justification. I think where are we today with that? The first is that sometimes there hasn't been any justification for remaining. If there's no justification, you're not using the guiding principles. Second, that you really need to also when you say we're providing essential services. Uh, my friend, Gerald Pashu, um, uh, one of Ruggie's advisors, talks about the fact that chocolate chip cookies are not essential, right? That, that we're, you know, they're not what people need to survive. 
So really, we need to, you've got to be very precise if you're a company saying that that's why we're staying. You know, is it a very key kind of medicine that needs to be provided to, let's say, children? Um, and we just haven't had that kind of analysis from companies uh, there. And then finally, uh, in terms of, 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 of these essential services, really, again, are there alternatives? Often there are local substitutes. So even something you might call essential probably can pre be produced and provided uh, there. So I know that's not a simple answer. It's just to say it's complicated. Um, the last piece is civil society does ask certain companies to stay in Russia. So if we think about civil society groups, journalists, human rights defenders, they want access to the internet, for example. They want access to computers because they want to be able to do their work. So how we sort of square that circle of, of, of the human rights community wanting companies to go and other civil society groups saying, well, we need access to certain things so we can continue to, 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 to speak the truth big challenge and you, you do hear some companies who sort of say proudly they've complied with the sanctions and feel that they've done a good job because of it um uh, which of course is only obeying the law um in whatever regime the sanctions are imposed uh i don't think you and i are going to disagree on this anita but it's not enough and um tell companies who might be thinking about that why they're getting it wrong yeah, so we do. Well, quite simply, and so Richard, we do agree. We say uh, that human rights due diligence can certainly help with sanctions compliance, right? If you know who your business partners are, um, and if someone's on a sanctions list, that helps. But sanctions compliance is not human rights due diligence. There are many types of businesses and companies and sectors that have not been impacted by sanctions. They need to be looking at the conflict, looking at who their business partners are and relationships and, and making smart, educated decisions about what if they need to leave. Um, so you can't wait for a sanctions list um, to do human rights due diligence. Indeed. And um, that heightened uh, awareness and approach to human rights due diligence that Anita was talking about earlier, what I learned from your your report was that just as we say that companies can have both positive and adverse human rights impacts, that companies can have positive and adverse impacts on conflict itself and it's about thinking not simply once a conflict started how do we stop being complicit in human rights abuses violations crimes and war crimes but it's about actually having a role in in perhaps peace building or conflict avoidance uh, before ever conflict breaks out is that, is that too optimistic anita or or do you see that role no, I, I do see that role. I think it, it's a continuous cycle. And, and so can companies be part of a sort of peace building or sustained peace? The answer is yes, but they need to change their approach. So what we've seen is, you know, if we think about, and again, for Lena and for other experts, there's also going to be the question about when should business return to certain markets, whether it's Russia or come back to Ukraine or elsewhere around how. And even in those situations, you still need to use this heightened lens, which is to say, just coming into a market and providing jobs or opening a factory isn't what sustains peace. It's, it's an ingredient, but you have to be sensitive to that local context and the history of the conflict because the parties may be there, but 
even if there's a peace agreement, it doesn't mean that the society is fully healed and at peace. So I'll just mention that we have one other piece of guidance that we recently released, um, focusing on how companies can interact and engage in transitional justice processes. And I don't, I don't mean just truth commissions or being prosecuted. I'm talking about the fact that often sort of this idea of business providing economic development is enough, and it's not. Businesses need to understand that in a post-conflict setting, that they're, they're being there isn't neutral, that the society, the parties are still connected to conflict dynamics. And so to ensure that, that there is that peaceful transition, companies need that heightened lens. Sadly, we're coming towards the end of uh, our time together, but I just want to ask you both some questions, both looking back and looking forward. Well, one is Anita, you've been a you were the chair of the working group. You're watching very carefully what's happening around the world, including the European directive that Frank Bold and frankly speaking addresses regularly um, in our work and in our, our discussions. Um, this is almost too provocative a question, but actually if that directive as envisaged had been passed and was applied in Ukraine, would it have made a difference? So are those things all talk or what actual difference does mandatory due diligence make? Yeah, so Richard, I think the answer is yes. I think there is an opportunity for mandatory human rights due diligence to be transformational, but under two or three conditions. The first is that states don't abandon pillar one. There's a role for states to be backstopping businesses, both through requiring things but providing that guidance and that sort of proactivity when things happen. Because again, um, the, the, we need to implement as well as require. So I would say that's one piece of it. The second one is, is that again, even basic human rights due diligence provides a stronger framework for companies to respond to global crises, whether it's a pandemic or a conflict. So I think the answer is yes. One would hope that more companies would have the ability to ask the right questions and think about their connection to harm. And even if they didn't know heightened and never read the UN report, would know that the risks to human beings becomes so different when things happen. And just to remember, and this is what we saw with the pandemic and we've seen with the conflict, um, companies often think only about, let's say, their own executives or their own, even just foreign employees when a conflict breaks out. They need to think about their communities and all employees and local employees before they exit. Same about the pandemic. It's one thing to think about your headquarters and, and your workers there, but we saw that you needed to think about the worker at the end of the supply chain. So that's what it's about. It's broadening companies analysis to really take into account all rights holders. So long way of saying yes. And I, I have to say another thing is we talk about why we need due diligence and the guiding principles. We also need people like Lena. So what we've seen here is you are speaking to the foremost expert on business and human rights in Ukraine, but it wasn't overnight. She has been a leader and dedicated to this because she has the foresight and vision to understand that under any circumstance, we need to help and guide businesses through these complex challenges. Well, Lena, one is I want to join with Anita in paying great credit to you and thank you thank for all the work that you're doing. Uh, and in, in this uh, edition of Frankly Speaking, I've been talking with you about the situation today as it is in Ukraine and applying your work. Can I ask you to look ahead? You know, you've obviously got great vision about where business and human rights should go. And you, you're very rooted, not just in Ukraine, but in the whole Central and Eastern European region, 
many people say that issues like corruption are uh, endemic there, um, and that that um, so the challenges can be very marked and different from some other regions and countries in the world. I'm, I'm not putting words into you now, but I, I very much want to hear your words about where what you think the future of business and human rights will be and should be coming from the Ukrainian context. Actually, I, I, I should say that we have some positive experience, first of all, because Ukrainian society understood actually the role of uh, companies and uh, Ukrainian society sees uh, the role of companies now not just economic actors. And uh, we re realized that uh, actually it's uh, about people's life, you know, and responsible business conduct is about people's lives. And I think that it's a very important scene. And the second scene uh, is about um, the role of civil society organizations and volunteers because uh, Ukrainian society obtained uh, the unique experience of very fruitful cooperation and coordination of efforts between civil society businesses and local authorities. Uh, and in many cases, uh, this experience uh, uh, was uh, without any coordination uh, of central, um, central state authorities uh, central bodies and uh, I, I, I believe that uh, it's one of the things that we should uh, should take um, to the future this uh, ability to coordinate the efforts and to find uh, ways to identify needs, challenges, vulnerabilities of local communities, of different groups of people, and to actually to understand that civil society could help companies uh, to identify these vulnerabilities and needs. Uh, a very poignant closing message that conflict doesn't just put new perspectives and responsibilities on business, uh, and opportunities for business, but on stakeholders too, and the the relationships that stakeholders hold with business itself. Sadly, we have come to the end of our time, but I can't thank you enough, both Anita Ramasastri and Lena Yuvarova. Um, uh, we'd like to invite all of our audience to send us your feedback to frankly speaking at frankbold.org and to share our conversation. You've been listening. To frankly speaking the frank bold podcast on responsible business watch out for our next episode and find out more about frank bold's responsible companies section on twitter and on linkedin thank you again to my good friend and colleague anita stay in touch uh, but thank you in particular to lena uh, and we wish you uh, um, uh, continued success in your work but also do stay safe and we hope to see and hear from you again soon. Thank you to both of you. Thank you to our audience.